Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. In the 1970s and 80s, a monster hunted the Connecticut River Valley. Seven bodies found, one survivor, and no suspects. I'm Jane Borowski, host of Invisible Tears. I was seven months pregnant and stabbed 27 times, and I survived. My story didn't end that frightful night. This attack on me physically and mentally lingered for years. I'm Amanda Bedard, and I'm Jane's life coach and co-host of Invisible Tears. Jane is ready to share her story, and not just about her attack, but her healing process afterwards. As a platform for truth and healing, we are on a mission to help others that suffer from PTSD and help bring awareness to mental health issues. To hear my story and others, you can find Invisible Tears wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. You guys, I have found the perfect podcast for the spooky season, and I think you are going to enjoy it just as much as I do. Three Spooked Girls. Three Spooked Girls is a true crime and paranormal podcast where co-host and longtime best friends, Tara and Jessica, talk about cold cases, missing persons, ghouls, goblins, and all things that go bump in the night. Join the girls every Monday for a deep dive on significant true crime cases like Ted Bundy or Ed Kemper. To hear the history of haunts and abandoned asylums, homes, and creepy creatures. Then come back every other Thursday for more doses of true crime. This podcast will give you the feeling that you're sitting with your closest pals while discussing important cases and creepy topics to get you in the mood for spooky season. Find Three Spoot Girls on social media with the handles at Three Spoot Girls or on TikTok as at Spooky underscore Sleuth and at Spooky Aunt Jessie. And listen to Three Spooked Girls, available anywhere you get your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... As a parent, you learn that you will forever be plagued with the decision between keeping them safe and letting them soar. It is a terrifying decision that will always keep you second-guessing your choice. On October 9th, 1972, a beautiful little boy was born. 
who, after his parents made that fateful decision to let him soar, would go down in history as the original Milk Carton Kid. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. On the morning of May 25th, 1979, a young boy named Itan Pates, born October 9th, 1972, left his Soho apartment to walk himself to his bus stop for the first time without his parents. It was a big step, and though the stop was only two blocks away, his parents anxiously loosened their parenting reins just slightly. A decision they deeply regretted when Etan never came home nor did he ever make it to the bus and to school that morning. A fact that his teacher noted, but failed to report to the principal. Panicked, Julie Pates called the police and detectives were dispatched. At first, Aton's own parents were considered suspects, but after quickly ruling them out, a search party of about 100 officers and a team of bloodhounds descended upon the city, trying to find the six-year-old boy. The search, which included neighbors and members of their Manhattan community, went on for weeks, and the city was littered with missing persons posters containing the toothy grin of an innocent little boy taken by his photographer father, a face that would appear on milk cartons, one of the first to do so nationally, and was even projected on the screens of Times Square. None of this resulted in any valid leads. Years passed, and Eitan's name became synonymous with every parent's worst fear. But he also became the major force behind the necessary legislative and investigative changes when it came to missing children. Not only was he known as one of the first milk carton kids when the campaign launched nationally in the early 1980s, but in 1983, President Ronald Reagan designated May 25th, the anniversary of his disappearance, as National Missing Children's Day in the United States, and later would serve as the inspiration for founding the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. This, along with the extensive media coverage of his case, brought greater attention to missing children as a whole and upped the vigilance of almost everyone in the country. However, it also led to the concept of stranger danger, which has since been considered a detriment. While the campaigns and other tactics adopted seemed to help some, the Pates family was left without their son as the years continued to pass. His fate, a complete mystery to the family and to the nation who all wanted answers. In 1985, the assistant U.S. attorney, a man named Stuart R. Grabois, received the Pates case and, pretty quickly, found a man that he believed may be a viable suspect in Etan's disappearance. Jose Antonio Ramos was a convicted sexual abuser who had been a friend of one of Etan's former babysitters, a man who, in 1982, had multiple boys come forward and accuse him of trying to lure them into a drain pipe near where he was living at the time. When police searched the pipe, they found a photo of Jose with a boy who looked very similar to Etan Pates. Jose was a suspect pretty early on in Etan's disappearance, but there was never any evidence connecting him to the case. Intrigued, Stewart continued to look into Jose's record and found out that he had been in custody in Pennsylvania for an unrelated child molestation case. In 1990, Stewart was deputized as a deputy state attorney general in Pennsylvania to help prosecute a case against Jose Ramos while simultaneously trying to see if there was any connection with Etan Pace's case. 
While questioning him, Stewart learned that on the day Etan disappeared, Jose had taken a young boy back to his apartment to rape him. A boy who Jose was, quote, 90% sure was the boy he later saw on everyone's television screens and on all the missing persons posters. Though he never said Etan's name, he claimed he had, quote, put the boy on a subway and had no clue what happened to him after. Then, in 1991, while Jose was still behind bars, a jailhouse informant told Stuart Grabois and FBI agent Mary Gilligan that Jose had admitted to knowing what happened to Etan Pates, even drawing a map of the school bus route and indicating that he knew Etan's stop was the third one on the route. Finally, on October 21st, 1999, after years of searching, investigating, and wondering, the New York Post reported in a special feature that Jose Ramos was the prime suspect in Etan's disappearance. And though his body has never been found, the young boy was declared legally dead in 2001. Three years later, Stan and Julie Pates pursued and won a civil case against Jose Ramos, and were rewarded a symbolic sum of $2 million, which has never been collected. Because Jose could not be criminally prosecuted for the murder, this civil case was the best that they could do. Every year on Etan's birthday, Stan Pates sends Jose a copy of his son's missing child poster with the same message typed on the back. What did you do to my little boy? Jose Ramos has denied killing Etan Pates since the day he was first questioned. He served his 20-year sentence in Pennsylvania, was released in November of 2012, and was rearrested soon thereafter for violation of Megan's Law. In 2010, on the anniversary of his disappearance, Etan's case was reopened yet again in hopes of finding out exactly what happened that day in 1979. On April 19, 2012, the FBI and NYPD worked to excavate the basement of a home near where Etan once lived, a home that was refurbished shortly after Etan's disappearance. After four days of searching, nothing conclusive was found. Then, that same year, a man named Jose Lopez reached out to investigators and said he believed he knew who abducted Etan Pates. He claimed that Pedro Hernandez, his brother-in-law, was the man police needed to be looking into. Statements made by Nina Hernandez, Pedro's sister, and Tomas Rivera, the leader of the charismatic Christianity group in New Jersey, indicated that Pedro may have made a public confession in front of other parishioners in the early 1980s. In fact, Nina went on to say that Pedro's involvement in not only Etan's abduction, but murder, was a, quote, open family secret that he confessed in the church. By May 24, 2012, 51-year-old Pedro Hernandez was in custody and in a written confession to police said, I'm sorry, I shook him, indicating he strangled the young boy to death. At the time of his murder, Pedro was an 18-year-old convenience store employee who worked at the neighborhood bodega. Despite having no physical evidence to corroborate his confession, Pedro Hernandez was later charged with second-degree murder and first-degree kidnapping. After being indicted on November 14, 2012, Pedro's lawyers came forward stating that he was diagnosed with schizotypal personality disorder, including hallucinations, and had an IQ that bordered on intellectual disability. Regardless, the trial continued. On December 12, 2012, he pleaded not guilty to the counts against him. And the following April, his legal aide filed a motion to dismiss the case, citing, quote, 
Confession in one of the nation's most notorious child disappearances was false, peppered with questionable claims and made after almost seven hours of police questioning. The motion was denied. After some discussion about the validity of some of his confession and his understanding of his Miranda rights, the trial of Pedro Hernandez officially began on January 5th, 2015, with his recorded interviews being played repeatedly over the course of a five-month trial. Jury members listened on as he admitted leading the boy, whom he lured inside the bodega by asking if he wanted a soda, into the basement where he started to choke him to death. When he was done, he put Etan's small body into a bag and left him at a garbage can nearby. He claimed he believed the boy was still alive when he left him there. Members of his church came forward with stories of a number of confessions over the years to killing a boy in New York City, and one even told of how he fell to his knees and tearfully admitted to attacking a young boy. His ex-wife also testified that, just before they were married, he told her he killed a muchacho when he was younger, but she inferred that he was speaking about a teenager, not a six-year-old boy. She also admitted to finding a photo of Itan, the one in his missing persons poster, inside her husband's closet prior to their divorce. While all of this information seemed pretty damning, the defense sought to punch holes in whatever testimony they could, because with no body and no evidence, the prosecution's case relied solely on Pedro's confession and the testimonies against him. In May of 2015, the case was declared a mistrial due to the jury's 11-to-1 deadlock. A retrial began on October 19, 2016, and on February 14, 2017, the Pates family listened on as Pedro Hernandez was found guilty of kidnapping and felony murder. He was later sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of parole in 25 years. Stan and Julie Pates had the 2004 judgment against Jose Ramos dismissed after Pedro Hernandez's trial began. They were convinced that he was not responsible for their son's death, though he does remain a convicted child molester. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to what terrible thing happened on October 10th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe. 